I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of GreenRope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Festock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Marge Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. This is bonus material. Yes, if you remember in our launch uh, podcast episode on April 10th, if you have not heard it, go back and listen so you can get the vision, understand the premise of what we are doing and where we're going uh, with this podcast. But I mentioned a little small part about having bonus material. Well, today is your lucky day. You're going to get some bonus material. Now, when I talk about bonus material, these are people who are not baby boomers, who may be uh, influencers, uh, who may be CEOs of a younger generation. So with that being said, I want to introduce you to someone who used to be a uh, entertainment producer and formerly a Disney Imagineer who actually builds the productions that we all get to go enjoy right here in America and around the world. Uh, this woman has been uh, at the top of her game for many, many years. And so um, she runs this awesome movement called the Brave Millennial. Now, let me give you a little background on this. The Brave Millennial encourages millennials to start by being brave inside your own circle of influence. And so she was kind enough. She and I connected over Instagram uh, and we decided to have an initial conversation. And I realized very quickly in talking to her, literally like within the first five minutes, she's somebody that would give an awesome perspective. So what I would like to do is introduce you all to some bonus footage right here on highlevelwisdom.com of my interview with Laura Youngkin of the Brave Millennial. Take a listen. Laura, how are you? <laughs> I'm great, Chris. Thank you for that very dynamic introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I travel too, so anytime you need it, so it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 Laura, uh, this, is, this is an opportunity for uh, the, the, the tables to kind of turn around. People have heard CEOs sure. have got an opportunity to kind of listen to their perspective. But uh, when I saw some of what you were doing and some of the things that were going on in your space, I thought, this is the type of uh, conversation that is needed from the millennial to the CEO's ears. And so I, I don't want to spoil any of it, um, but what I would like to do is this. Laura, just share with our audience a little bit about your journey, kind of how you even got to this place with the brave sure. millennial. But then what, what were the things that were kind of happening along your corporate path that kind of led you in this direction? Sure. So I've had kind of an interesting journey. Um, it's really a convergence. I think for many people in my generation, there's this convergence of creativity and corporate world, right? It's like we all get out of school. We, um, a lot of us are, you know, creators and artists and have a bend toward creativity. And yet in order to really make a living and pay off those school loans, you really have to, um, for a period of time, kind of jump into a more structured corporate world in order to establish yourself um, and actually think that those opportunities are are really valuable and really fantastic. Um, I ended up where I am today. I currently, I'm an independent producer now. I left Disney in late 2015 and I have my own independent practice where I work on a variety of projects and in the entertainment space and immersive entertainment space, as well as run the Brave Millennial, which really began as a passion project. It was my um, way to understand and work out and um, 
really fuel my desire to do more for my peer group. And I felt that if I was going to do more for millennials and particularly millennial women, I needed to know more. And so around me throughout my 20s, um, I experienced, you know, what I thought was actually pretty normal. I was getting out of school. And, you know, when you're getting out of school and entering the workforce, for the first time, there's a lot of talk about your age. There's a lot of um, attention being paid to that, your lack of experience, um, your um, your need to just sit back and learn and pay your dues and all of this. And it's a constant part of the conversation. And I think in my early 20s and even mid-20s, I expected that as I got older and as I was turning 30, that those discussions would go away, that my age would not still be a such a topic of conversation in the workplace. Um, but it was because in a lot of ways, um, I, found, I found myself being the youngest person sometimes, um, even at the age of 30, and definitely one of the youngest leaders in my group. I also found myself often being the only woman. And this is just a byproduct of working in the entertainment business. That's kind of par for the course. Um, but I really expected some of those things to fall to the wayside, and they didn't. And I saw how this kind of constant narrative especially on the internet around millennials and how difficult they are and how challenging it is to manage them and all of their expectations and all of their needs and all of these things. I found how that kind of negative narrative was influencing the way that people viewed millennials in the workplace around me. And it was impacting my, it was impacting me, but it was also impacting my peers. And oftentimes they were being labeled or saddled with stereotypes um, that really had nothing to do with them or didn't have anything to do with their actual performance. And I thought that that was kind of a problem. So um, so like I said, in order to do something about that, I felt that I needed to know more about it. It wasn't enough for me to just read great books about millennials and about intergenerational relationships and leadership, although I did that. Um, there's tons of amazing studies that have come out by McKenzie, Deloitte, PwC, all these great firms who really every year deep dive into millennials, millennial workplace culture, female millennials, I mean, all types of great data is available. But I'm a storyteller. I come from a storytelling background. And for me, sometimes just the statistics and just that raw data is not enough. I want to know what is behind that. Who are the people? What are the stories? And how do these biases, whether they be racial, gender, ability focused, how do any of our biases, both conscious and unconscious at work, influence not only the bottom line and our ability to do great, to do great work, but how are they impacting the upward mobility of my peers? And so that's kind of what I set out to do with the Brave Millennial in the first phase last year. Um, I, I traveled across the U.S. I hosted 11 forums in nine major markets. I brought together uh, completely random groupings of millennial women ages 22 to 35. They all took a 65-question survey, so I learned a lot about them prior to them entering the room. Wow. And then I facilitated – yeah, it's great. I have – I've got a treasure trove of info, but I, I mean, I, I think you probably should like rewind and you did <laughs> how many in a year? I well, starting in March of 2016, um, I did 11 events in nine major markets. So I was on the road quite a bit last year and I've interviewed about 300 women um, and surveyed them and then hosted these conversations for them that are about three hours a piece. And it was really a time for them to to talk about 
um, how bias impacts uh, their workplace experience in a way that really we don't have an opportunity to do for fear of retribution or being called whiny or complaining or all these things. I kind of made a safe space where we could talk about these issues um, in a really productive way. So you can imagine I learned quite a bit by doing that. And now that I've learned so much more than I knew before, I feel really empowered to do more. Wow. Well, this show is only an hour, but I feel like we could literally talk for the next three hours. <laughs> uh, you pointed out a lot of great things there. So so I'm interested. Um, like any venture, you typically uh, kind of start out not knowing a lot mm-hmm. of things, but you learn the more you do, right? So yes. what was kind of the the first aha moment that you had? Probably like the second or third, you know, form that you put together with these women. What was kind of the thing that made you go, wow, this, this is really a thing? Mm. Well, the response after each session, even in the early sessions, was pretty phenomenal and dynamic and very passionate. So uh, uh, as the year went on, I heard more and more. And of course, I love getting these emails or even like handwritten thank you notes in the mail from women who are like, I've never had this conversation before. I've never felt empowered to discuss some of these issues with my peers and ask for guidance. I thought I was alone in some of the things I was experiencing or or going through. And I found out tonight that I'm not alone and that if we are willing to talk about these things, we'll find a a pretty tremendous support group in my local community that I can tap into. And so I knew pretty quickly that the space mattered, that the time mattered and the security and the kind of privacy around the conversation also mattered. The very first one um, I brought in a film crew just to see, because I wanted to capture some, you know, B-roll footage and just wanted to see the dynamic. Like, how does this work if maybe we're filming it? Could this be a really interesting documentary someday? Like, how would that work? And um, I'm glad I did that and got it out of the way on the first one because um, I learned that it's really best if the conversation stays closed, stays behind closed doors, it stays private um, for the for the duration of the conversation. I also learned really quickly, and I saw this actually more and more as the year went on. Mind you, it was such an interesting year to be doing this project because we were in such a contentious election cycle. But um, I found and was really encouraged, actually, by the instincts of the people that I met with throughout the year across every city that I visited. Now, I always start out the the night that people show up, they check in, there's wine and food and networking and kind of getting to know each other. And then we all sit down in a circle and then I separate the conversation into two halves with a break in the middle. And in the first half, we always dive in and talk about work and um, people share stories and we have some really interesting, engaging conversation. The second half, no matter what city I was in, no matter what was happening in the news that week, the conversation organically always turned to problem solving and not just what are our problems, what are what are the things that we're experiencing and what are we going to do about them, but what are the problems that are facing our world, that are facing our generation, that are facing our country, and what are we going to do about them? How are we going to be instrumental in affecting change in that way? So I saw a lot of you know, taking up the reins of responsibility. And I saw a lot of very intrinsic and inherent desire to 
um, make a difference and and play a personal role at a local or even national level um, on how to solve larger issues. So that was really um, that was really inspiring for me, actually, and kind of helped drive me from one city to the next. Wow. So when you're having these in-depth conversations and I, and I, I would imagine that many people enjoy it because they do feel it's a safe place. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know how to relate very well to take random people <laughs> and in this very short order, <laughs> make them feel comfortable to even have this conversation. But I I wonder about the 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 level of engagement and the level of career path. So do you see that the conversation is varying, whether they're an individual contributor versus an executive woman? Well, to be honest, um, a lot of the young women, I mean, even the women in their in their early 30s um, had not reached executive status yet. Um, so I didn't have a tremendous amount. I mean, my, my group tended to, to the average age was between like 26 to 32 was pretty normal. But even the women who were, you know, 34, 35, kind of in that, that borderline millennial gen X space, um, they were not always at the executive level yet, but they were definitely there. There is a, there is a divide between those who are just starting out and those who have already moved into some sort of a managerial or leadership role. And yes, of course, um, their perspectives, their expectations and their experiences are different, um, based on, you know, just the number of years in the workforce. Right, right, right. So, so if we're having this discussion and, and a CEO is listening, mm-hmm. what would you say are uh, some of the the things that millennials may be missing when it comes to how they should approach their career? If, if they're 25 mm. to 35 and, you know, senior leadership is, is looking for talent and they have their opinion, right? But what would you sure. say? I mean, what would you say are kind of those things that, they kind of have that maybe they need to be more aware of when it comes to laying out their career and, and feel free if it's more pointed towards the, the, the brave millennial as a woman, feel free to share that as well. Sure. Sure. So something that, that I see, um, and not just in my work with the brave millennial, but, you know, beyond talking with just millennial women, talking with company leaders, um, participating in, you know, large corporate cultures, all of my experiences and conversations with, um, with other experts and with other executives and millennials, I see this pattern, which is, you know, we, we live in a world and in a culture right now that really values immediacy. Technology has changed our everyday existence so much in the last 10 and 20 years that we have come to expect a certain amount of immediacy to the way we access information. And I think that translates to how quickly we crave milestones and success in our lives. I mean, it's tons has been written, you know, and understood about millennials being a product of a, of a helicopter parenting generation, right? It's, um, there's, I always hear like, oh, millennials were giving, given participation trophies. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't get a participation <laughs> trophy. I mean, we were really, but we were, my generation was, you know, brought up in a culture of team sports and um, collaborative team activities, which I think makes us great at collaboration. Um, but it also, 
we were really trained to be competitive and you had a a significant, I mean, all the way up to graduating college or even graduate school, you have this kind of academic calendar or sports related or creativity related. You know, I was in Texas growing up, I was competitive in the arts. Like Texas can make anything a competition, high school theater, (laughs) music, anything, right? Shout out to those in Texas. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it was a great experience. Um, but it really, you know, the first 20 years of your life become measured in these kind of bite size, um, milestones. And so when you get out of school and you enter the workforce, I think a lot of us, including myself at one point really were looking for, well, how do I measure my own success? How do I, how do I chart this path? First of all, what what am I doing? How do, how does this work? And if I make mistakes in the early years, does that mean that I'm a failure for the rest of my life? And so whenever you lose the ability to work hard towards a visible goal or milestone, um, I think it makes my generation, a lot of us, really uncomfortable. And so what I find is that millennials really view their career path as this, this sprint with only one path, with only one way to go down, instead of looking at it as a marathon with no set course, which is what it really is, right? We are thinking about the next year, the next two to three years, maybe the next five years, but not really considering the arc of the next 40 years, um, which if you're lucky, that you know you may work 40 or 50 years in, um, yeah, until you retire. And so, um, and we're not really looking at that. I think a lot of us are products of also, you know, the economic downturn. Some of us had parents who were affected by that. And so we've seen that you, the, the world doesn't really work the way it used to, right? I mean, it's not really, um, it's not really something that happens anymore where you get out of school, you get a job at a company, you work there 45 years and you get the ring and the pen and the trip and then you retire. That's not really the reality. And I think that, we are still measuring uh, professional success by an outdated metric. And wow. so it causes millennials to um, to kind of go, oh, my gosh, I'm not I haven't achieved what my parents had achieved at their age. I'm not making as much money as my parents were making, you know, at this age. And therefore, I'm somehow a failure when really the world just has changed and the and the economic climate and the workplace climate has changed so much that it's impossible to measure ourselves against our parents. Wow. I could talk, I'll clearly talk about this forever, but I well, think that's something that we're missing. You know, I, I think you bring up a very good point. And, and I, I love that idea of we're we're measuring ourselves by an outdated metric. I, yeah. I think I, I think that's a very good point, considering Technology has changed in the last decade very quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that even sometimes how we measure ourselves or um, the way we, we, we view a particular uh, uh, snapshot mm-hmm. of our lives yeah. is, is poten- I love that outdated metric. It, it's, it's very, very true. And so, it, so I'm interested. Um, you kind of shared, you know, that particular perspective where do you see the the millennial having to make that adjustment? Is it is it just in the the idea of, oh, I should be in this position within this many years? Is it more in the personal day to day world? Like what where do you feel <laughs> like the, the, the that realization or at least swallowing that pill needs to happen? 
Well, I can tell, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of different stories and I think that this realization um, is different for everyone depending on their uh, industry and experience and, you know, their own personal, their challenges and personality. For me, um, the realization happened when I, be, you know, because of certain um, really unexpected things that happened in my life, certain events that happened over the last four years or so, um, it really challenged me to push beyond that kind of type A, very focused um, personality and the, the viewpoint that I had on my career or my own performance or my outlook on the world. Um, you know, where we are, or at least I was as a, as a young person who showed a penchant for leadership, uh, I was really trained uh, in that arena and constantly, you know, it's it's interesting now. I think so much of our education, at least mine, is all about you know churning out people who are who are skilled leaders, and then we're dumping them into a workforce where we're expecting them to be subordinate. That's a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> but I really, you know, I'm a producer. I pride myself on being able to make the plan, work the plan, anticipate risk, eliminate risk, and make things happen and get things done. And so uncertainty has never been comfortable for me. And then my whole life kind of got turned upside down. And I, I left a company I thought I would work at forever that I had never planned on leaving. And I charted a, a new course that I hadn't anticipated for myself. And in the beginning, that was really terrifying, really scary. Um, it turns out to be one of the best things I could have ever done. And you don't get to that point without going through some of those experiences and realizing that, oh, my gosh, I've been so focused on the immediacy of the now. I've been so focused on this moment or what I'm, what's going to happen in the next couple of years from now, not really thinking about the long term for myself. Um, and so I think kind of maybe getting the, car, the rug pulled out from under you can, can be helpful in that regard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? It's like getting dumped into the deep end of the swimming pool and learning how to swim. I mean, there's a million you know, metaphors yeah, for absolutely. this. But really walking through fire, I think, is a great way to kind of shake off some of those expectations. And they're expectations that we, our generation carries over from parenting that we experienced or school or any of our other kind of childhood experiences, we put a tremendous amount of pressure on ourselves to be successful. But again, how are we measuring that success? And I heard from a lot of people who felt like, oh, I just feel like I haven't done enough or I haven't um, achieved enough at this age. And I'm worried that I never will. And it's like, yeah, but we're just still at the beginning. But I think our our access, our technology, our, the immediacy of our world really fuels that um, desire to be successful really quickly. Absolutely. And for some people, that means that means different things. It could mean a job title or some type of compensation or a type of responsibility or having your own business, whatever that is. Uh, we want it. We want it quickly. And um, and I think. I don't know. I mean, that that's my story. But, but getting the rug pulled out from under me and having to change the course is really what helped me sit back a little bit more into the uncertainty of the marathon in front of me. Absolutely. The uncertainty of the marathon in front of you. I think that's learning to deal with that and be comfortable in that space is probably everyone's journey uh, at yes. some point. Otherwise, you live in an, a, a seriously frustrated life. Um, right. <laughs> if, right. If you don't, you you really, really do. And so, 
you know, it's just fascinating that you that you would have that perspective uh, up until now. And so being a storyteller that you are, uh, you tell stories uh, for people's enjoyment uh, Mm -hmm. and you've and you've taken that storytelling to another layer deeper to be able to tell the story of the brave millennial. Then with with the experiences that you've had and kind of stepping out in this new path. How does that how do you feel that impacts going to work every day? Uh, I mean, if 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 the if it's true that we all have that uncertainty that we've got to get uncomfortable, that we've got to get comfortable with. And and there's there's kind of that portion of waking up with the okay that I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to go out and and do my best. How do you feel that has impacted how millennials walk into the workplace every day? The nine to five, the blue collar person. Mm, that's a really great, great question. Um, I feel just from my own um, experiences and from the stories that I've heard, millennials are not as in love with the rigidity of the nine to five or in many cases, eight to six or seven work day. Um, they crave flexibility. Some people, (laughs) right? Right. It's a really long day. I mean, it's not unusual for for people to work twelve or fourteen hours a day, and to even be available, you know, when they're not at work. So answering emails at ten, eleven, you know, one o'clock in the morning. Um, The technology that that fuels us and makes things capable is also pushing us to a point of maybe overconnectivity, and that's when burnout happens. Um, Burnout is a whole other you know, a whole other topic that we talk about in some of my brave millennial sessions and people share their burnout stories. And a lot of it is due to, um, to, due to overworking and kind of that over, overconnectedness with work, never having a break. Uh, I think millennials really value flexibility. They value um, autonomy. They value teamwork and collaboration, but they don't necessarily uh, feel like they have to do it the way it's always been done, I guess I should say. So that's why I think you see so many, you know, newer companies or, um, or startups kind of changing the culture of the way we work and really putting value on how much work is getting done, how productive are we being over, how many hours are we spending in the office. But it's really, it's really, really different. I mean, I'm, I've traveled to all these different cities and some of them still have a very traditional, um, you know, the city itself has a more traditional kind of workplace culture that permeates various industries that exist and others are more progressive. I mean, the conversations I had with women in Orlando who work in finance and, um, and the healthcare space or insurance or kind of some of these or in aerospace engineering, some of these more um, technical um, types of roles versus the women who are living in Los Angeles and working in creative and more entertainment industry based roles. I mean, those, their two workday experiences are entirely opposite. And it does, it's not always a byproduct of their particular company, but a byproduct of the place in which they live. Um, and so I don't know, I don't think it's, um, I mean, I, I can say for me, this experience and hearing these stories has challenged me when I go to work every day now. 
um, to really look beyond like the cover of the book, like having these conversations and learning more about people has really pushed me to be more empathetic in so many ways. And so I'm capable now of assessing, you know, conflict or, or challenges or, um, or other issues or personality conflicts in a way that I wasn't able to do before. So that's how it's impacted me. Um, but I don't know. I'm not sure how it necessarily impacts the day-to-day for, for other millennials. Well, I, I think you might have touched on it there. And there's a couple of things that I, I really, really love that you, you kind of talked about. I, I think the first thing just kind of comes down to, you know, this idea that uh, your location can really be a determining factor. But I think also... Oh. The other part to that that I think is 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 not a very large conversation that I think um, probably needs a lot more light and exposure to is newer companies get the benefit of being new. Yes. Right. They they get the benefit of, of all the research and the data and the different things. But when you start talking about companies that have been around 50, 60, 70, 100 years that are global in nature. And turning turning that ship is is almost impossible. Right? That's exactly the metaphor I was thinking of. Those are really big ships, and it takes a long time, exactly, and a lot of effort to turn them in a new direction. I, and I do you feel agree. that the effort, though, because you know I've I've had this discussion with with a lot of different CEOs who who not only come on this on this show, but you know, uh, in, in, in private and, 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 and even those CEOs who say, I don't really want to be on the podcast, but I got an opinion. Right. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, is the effort just the, the leaders is the effort in the middle? Is it, is it the bottom up approach or is it all of the above? Because, because there's a tension in there. Right. There's the Mm. there's the tension that I feel that the millennial brings, you know, based on what you just said, you know, things are a lot faster. Um, There are ways to be more productive without being in the office 14, 15 hours a day. Um, And the office can mean at work, driving home and checking your email. right? Right. So there's ways now to be productive and not have to be present. But there's also something to being said to the. Um, the face to face time. I I personally believe, and this is just my little personal small soapbox here, but I believe the more connected that we are, as you mentioned, we're overconnected, but I also think it, 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 um, it hurts our ability to connect as humans, which I think is the most essential thing about being human. We have to connect. Um, and a device does not mean that we're connected. It's the, it's the person to person connection, the seeing of the eyes, the seeing of the spatial expressions, the the hearing of the tone using all of that. Um, One of the things I I share a lot is that you hear with your eyes as well. And so I I think all of that is very, very important. And so I'm 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 very interested in that side of the conversation, because to me, um, I, I don't I don't think you turn that ship quickly. But it's like, where does the effort who's 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 more responsible for that effort? Right. Well, I think first we have to dispel the myth that millennials don't like face-to-face contact. Um, it's it's entirely the opposite. Millennials really value in-person communication and relationships, even though they are fairly savvy 
um, although I'm not nearly as savvy as my, you know, teenage nephews, um, they're fairly savvy at, you know, adapting to social media and using technology and different collaboration tools, although I think that we are entirely oversaturated with collaboration tools at this point. Um, so we have to dispel that myth. Um, but I think the, the gripe that I hear most often is that the face-to-face time isn't being used productively, and that tears back to a frustration with leadership. So it's not necessarily that millennials don't want to be in the office or they don't want to show up to, you know, have these in-person collaboration sessions. It's actually the opposite. They love it. They just and – I, and I think this isn't just millennials, but people – who um, have big jobs to do or have a lot on their plate don't like wasting time. I mean, time is money. And sometimes when we're in these, you know, massive meetings with a gazillion decision makers and stakeholders, you know, it can cost thousands of dollars just to host all those people in a room for 30 minutes to an hour, right? So there's, I hear this a lot about like, well, I want to collaborate with people, but I don't feel that we're being very efficient. Um, I feel that inside of these different companies, And um, whether they are old companies or new companies, the tone is set at the top, no matter what. And that is the role and responsibility of senior leadership, no matter how senior leadership is organized, whether you're a business unit inside of a much larger corporation or you're a startup that only has 30 employees, the tone is set at the top. The culture is created. I mean, culture is people, right? Culture is not... um, perks so now that's a whole other conversation right <laughs> yeah, culture not is not <laughs> ping pong no it's not slogans it's not ping pong tables culture is not beanbag chairs culture is not sleeping nap pods whatever all these perks that workplaces have now that they feel and they, they need to invest in that doesn't make culture relationships um people and the why behind why we do what we do, that is what builds your culture. And the tone is set at the top and the example is set at the top. If the CEO is valuing um, the opinions and ideas and the relationships and making an effort to have relationships with his employees or her employees across the generations, so seasoned veterans all the way down to, you know, their newcomers, and let us not forget Gen X in the middle, um, it, that sets the stage. And so if that is the model that this company wants to um, to put out there, then that is what will be emulated or shown as a value to the rest of the employees. Um, now, I think that there's a way to engage your millennial employees if you feel like you want to Um, If you want to engage with them or maybe you feel like you have a problem um, retaining them or developing them or whatever there is there, I think the first thing you have to do um, in that regard, if you if you want to start the process of building real engagement for millennials, you need to start by talking to them. And that can only be done by leadership. I will tell you that movements that start from the inside that are led by millennials, even some that have been really widely written about and, um, you know, millennial entrepreneurship, um, even those movements and efforts fizzle out later on if they are not valued by the most senior leaders at that organization. So it really has to start at the top. So you start by talking to the millennial employees you have, and you can do this in a variety of ways. You can host an informal session with them. You can hire an outside firm to come in and do an assessment, you know, whatever works 
for your size company or your size group, you know, do what you need to do to figure out where you currently stand. That also requires you to be willing to hear bad news. So in order to do some of this work, in order to constantly be evolving our workplace culture to be more supportive of our employees, no matter their age, you have to start by letting go of your ego and being willing to make to listen and hear a raw assessment of where you currently stand and how your employees really feel about that. Uh, I think you should already be investing in a diversity and inclusion report on a yearly basis, and you should be very transparent about that information. Um, but once you assess where you are, there's a lot of ways you can either empower your own, you know, development and HR teams to kind of come up with a solution. Uh, I find those to be a little bit less successful. Um, or you can reach out, you know, there's a whole host of experts, um, out there that can kind of come in and help you solve whatever issue your company is experiencing. Most of the time I hear we're having trouble retaining millennial employees or we're having trouble, really engaging millennial talent after, you know, two, three, five years. Um, but no two groups are the same. Um, but in order to create a space that values intergenerational relationships and collaboration and knowledge sharing, um, which I hope we'll talk about here in a minute, but yes. to really do that, to promote those relationships, the leadership has to drink the Kool-Aid. You have to be all in. You set the tone. You cannot put it on um, – the younger generation to solve, and you also can't put it on middle management um, to solve because that's where a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of things get lost uh, in that in kind of that crunchy middle layer. Um, so I, I really think the responsibility lies at the top. Absolutely, and 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 just before we start talking about that knowledge sharing, because there's there's some cool things that you know uh, we even offer. Uh, on our end of that, you mentioned the crunchy middle. This is a conversation that, wow, um, there's so many uh, stories, if you will, that I think are not being told about that. So I'm going to ask you a question uh, that your opinion is highly uh, valuable to this discussion. So there's... I have been doing some research and I have been paying attention to uh, several different things that kind of inform uh, me on where where we're going with corporations in America, probably around the world. This idea of middle management. Mm -hmm. Do you. (laughs) How's the best way to ask this question? Do you think that middle management is dying? Oh, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I, when you say that, it just makes me um, think of a time in my very early on in my career where someone told me, like, don't talk to middle management about this idea because middle management is where things go to die. <laughs> Which I thought, wow. oh, gosh, like how sad. That yeah, can't be sad. true. That's really a bleak outlook. I, I really didn't want to believe that. But having worked at, you know, a handful of places now, um Middle management is such a tough place to work because in, when companies get so big, you know, the, the job families and your, these charts of like who reports to who, I mean, this organizational structure charts are just like off the chain. It is so hard and they change constantly. So it's impossible to determine over a long period of time, like who reports to who, who has a dotted line reporting relationship, when really we should be talking about accountability. 
Um, we talk about, you know, who reports, how do we, how do we structure this? And in that you end up with a lot, if you have a lot of employees, you end up with a lot of middle managers so that information gets filtered before it reaches the top. Um, and that is where I find that companies get into a lot of trouble. And that is also a space where fear, um, really becomes a driver and in the cultures that use fear as uh, a leadership tactic, whether they realize that they're doing it or not, that fear and the tension that exists in middle management actually permeates outward. And I think that tension um, creates a lot of competition and unhealthy um generational misconceptions about one another. So it really starts to break down trust. Uh, not, not in all cases. I mean, I've seen it go both ways. Um, but middle management is just a really tough place to be, uh, especially now when I think the workforce is craving more transparency and collaboration and honesty. And we put less value on rigidity and maybe saving face. It's like, okay, we have this issue. Let's talk about it. Why are we here wasting time if we're not really going to talk about what the problem is and what we're going to do to solve it? Wow. What an incredible perspective from somebody who has worked in one of the greatest companies in the world uh, doing some really cool things. And so, listen, I know you guys are interested in enjoying this particular episode. Uh, I'm so grateful for you actually stopping by and hearing our show today. So what I'd like for you to do is share this episode with all of your friends, the people that you know. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation as usual in two days where you get to hear more from Laura, what she does and more about her perspective and the conversation takes a really interesting turn that i know you guys are going to love so thank you guys so much for listening please uh share provide a comment download this episode and others on itunes and google play you can find us on twitter instagram and facebook at high level wisdom until we talk again i'll see you in the next episode at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.